The reading this morning is taken from Romans chapter 15, verses 1 to 33. We who are strong ought to bear with the feelings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbours for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement that they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Jesus Christ had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify God as Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another, then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, I will sing the praises of your name. Again it says, Rejoice you Gentiles with his people. And make and again praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the people extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesus will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles, we have hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that may overflow with hope by the powers of the Holy Spirit. I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. Yet I have written you quite boldly on some points to remind you them again because of the grace of God gave me to be minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctioned by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Jesus Christ in my services to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and wonders through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way round to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will be understand. This is what I have often been hindered from doing to you. But now, 
there is no more place for me to work in these regions. And since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you when passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Archaea were pleased to make a contribution for the poor amongst the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were, well, they were pleased to do it and intend they owe it to them. For the Gentiles have shared in Jews' spiritual blessing. They owe it to the Jews to share with them material blessings. So after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of your spirit, to join me in struggling by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I have to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there, so that I may come to you with joy. By God's will and in your company be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Good to see you all. Uh, for those I don't recognise, my name's Steve. I'm the vicar down the road at Houghton on the Hill, and it's lovely to see you all. It's lovely to see some, some new faces. Every time I come here, there are new people, which is really uh, wonderful. And you may well feel like you want to be like the Apostle Paul this morning on your way to Spain because it's so cold um, as he's traveling. I've got my tea here. I might even invest in a piece of cake. I don't know. <laughs> you wouldn't. It looks really good. Tom, I think you've done yourself a disservice. Um, well done. Let me, uh, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this next installment in your letter to the Roman Christians. And Father, we pray that you would speak by your Holy Spirit to each of our hearts this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you don't need me to remind you uh, that we live in a very uh, divided world. Um, I don't necessarily think it's any worse than years gone by, centuries gone by. It's just that we're much more aware of it and uh, it's whipped up a lot more through various uh, forms of media. Um, but it is a common problem and uh, it's a common problem that actually comes from our hearts. And it doesn't feel good, does it, division? Uh, in 2020, uh, my wife and I and our kids, we were visiting my wife's family in California. It was the summer, so it was the height of COVID when all those travel restrictions were in. We were able to travel because my wife's an American citizen. and We booked the tickets beforehand. And um, if you know America at all, there is a big divide between the Democrats uh, and the Republicans, the two political parties. And during COVID... That seemed to be made even worse, that divide. Uh, it felt like, and I kid you not, this is how it was, if you wore a mask uh, during COVID in the States, you were a Democrat. If you didn't wear a mask during COVID in the States, you were a Republican. There were just these polar positions. And we were out in a, in a park walking uh, in the open air, you know, two metres apart. I think they were the top rules that those 
days. We didn't have a mask on because you didn't need to wear one outside. Uh, but these, these women walked past as very well-dressed women and uh, masks on. And, and one of them had one of those walking sticks and went to poke our son Nate um, away from them to, to shush him away because he's getting too close. And then she just yelled, put your masks on, people, put your masks on. And, um, and it, was, it was shocking. And it just hit me, this divide uh, that had been created. And I was put on one side of that divide by virtue of not wearing a mask. And it was assumed by those women, I'd imagine that I was a Republican, that I voted Donald Trump, and I was anti-science. That's kind of what was created. Division is a problem that runs deep. Look at our Houses of Parliament closer to home. If you notice those two red lines that are in front of the, uh, the Prime Minister and the Opposition Leader, they're exactly two swords length apart. So that in the olden days, you couldn't just stab your opponent. Um, now they just say, thankfully, they're symbolic. But what are they symbolic of? It's division. And coming close to home, I bet that at some point in your own life, you have experienced division. Families can be divided. Friends can be divided. Churches can be divided. To live and to operate in a divided world is not a good thing. And it's definitely not a good thing in a church. And Paul, in the first part of this chapter in Romans, uh, would agree. We're going to look at this just in two sections uh, today. Verses 1 to 13, and then verses 14 uh, to 33. And in this first section... Uh, which you can find on page 1141. Do turn to it if you haven't got it open in front of you. In this first section, Paul is talking about seeking unity. Um, Just have a look at verse 1. We who are strong ought to bear with the feelings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Uh, Paul is saying the people who have power in the church, whether that's economic or just influence or maybe a a, a greater level of spiritual maturity, are not to use that to the benefit of themselves, but um, they're to use it for the benefit of those who don't share that strength. The strong are not to use their power to build themselves up. He's building on what he said last week in chapter 14, where he's speaking about relationships in the church. Um, And then it seems that Paul kind of widens this challenge. If you look at verse 2, he says, Each of us should please our neighbors. Christians are our brothers and our sisters, but every human being is our neighbor, even somebody you might not like. We should build them up. Verse 1 there is an ethical principle for all of life. In his commentary on this, Tim Keller, who who was a pastor in the States, sadly died a year or so ago. He said this in the realm of relationships and applying this to, I apologize, very small but then your screen size is different to hope, and I didn't realize that. Um, so I'll read it out. Um, you always get an eye test with me when you come to uh, church services, just to go to, you can read something. This is what Color says. Um, we're not simply to relate to our own kind or to people who give to us and build us up emotionally. We must be willing to relate to and love people who are draining. A Christian does not walk into a room and ask, are these people I want to be seen with? Are these people I will enjoy? But rather... How can I help and build up these people? Who might I be able to serve in some way? That's an application of what Paul's just saying there in verse 1 and 2. And, and Paul there is talking 
um, about how we relate to those outside of the church. And so I take it then, how much more should this be the case within the church? You know, what a church you'd have here in Thurnby and us down the road in Houghton and Stoughton and other churches we might have contacts with. If the chief interest of every person was the welfare, that spirit of the spiritual welfare, the emotional welfare, and physical welfare of other people, that would be a united church. And this way of living, this way of thinking that Paul is getting at, is rooted in knowing Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. For even Christ did not please himself. Jesus is the example here, and he's the motivation and the power to live this way. At no amount of political systems, hard work can fix totally the problem of disunity. But Jesus can. When you grasp how Jesus has treated us, you really get it. Our hearts change. And you see this in Paul's prayer of verses 5 and 6. He flips back to life in the church now because he's talking to these Christians. This unity that he's, he's after is a supernatural thing. Look at verse 5. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. This unity doesn't come when we just seek unity. It comes as a byproduct of seeking to follow and love and know Jesus Christ. And this unity, verse 6, is expressed as we worship together. A united church will spill out into praise and worship of God. If we are suspicious of the person sitting next to us in the pew, if we look down on others in the body of Christ, if we remain in our own little cliques, or if we try to protect our own empires within the church family, we are just those people that Jesus says worship God with their lips, but their hearts are far from them. God gives unity from the heart so that we can worship together. And as we do that, you actually become more and more united. And part of the division that Paul is getting at in the Roman church is this distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles. Um, the church in Rome was made up of, of Jewish and non-Jewish people. But in, in AD 49, um, the emperor Claudius expelled Jews from Rome. And, and five or so years later, they come back. But then when they come back, they find a church that has become very non-Jewish to them. That's kind of what chapter 14 was getting at. Customs that weren't observed. And so the Gentiles condemned the Jews. Um, sorry, the, the Jews condemned the Gentiles and the Gentiles mocked the Jews. And you had this divided church. And so Paul says in verse 7, look, you need to accept one another. But again, it's not let's figure out some kind of system for racial equality. It's grounded in Jesus Christ. Look how Christ, he says, has accepted you regardless of where you come from. Jesus coming to the Jewish people was, was a fulfillment of the Old Testament, but so is his coming to the Gentile, the non-Jew. And that's why he gives all those references in verses 9 to 12 from the Old Testament to show it was God's plan always to have a people made up from all nations. The reason for unity in the church then and now, and by extension to the world, is that Jesus Christ is for all. That he accepted every single human being and died every single human being, regardless of race. 
And so having any division, Paul is saying, on the basis of this is an affront to the gospel. Keller writes again, gospel unity across every divide and disagreement is what God has always been working toward. But there is an important caveat here that I just I think it's important for us to hear. Um, unity in churches is absolutely essential. Um, if you read 1 Corinthians 13, Paul has that famous, uh, those famous verses describing what love is. And one of the attributes of love, he says, love rejoices in the truth. Um, Jesus says in his prayer in John 17, he says these words, I pray also for those who believe in me through their message, that's the apostles, that's scripture, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Jesus prays for unity in the church, but it's a unity based on the truth of the message of the apostles, which is what we have revealed in scripture. Alec Matia, who's a, who's a Bible commentator, says this, there is no true unity where there is no unity in truth. There is no true unity where there is no unity in truth. And so we want to be absolutely united, but never at the expense of truth contained in scriptures. Those truths that are clear and primary and essential matters. And when it comes to church life, right throughout history, there can be lines that when crossed, it is right to distance ourselves from. And for me personally, the one right at the moment that you've probably heard a lot about is the majority of our bishops in the Church of England sadly crossed that line with these prayers of living in love and faith all revolving around human sexuality. And so there will be division because there can be no unity where there is no unity of truth. Second part to this chapter in uh, chapter 15 is to do with mission. I don't know if you enjoy the Mission Impossible movies. Um, I don't know which one they're on at the moment. There's a lot of them. But, uh, you know, a key part of uh, that film is when Ethan Hunt, the main character, gets that phone call in the phone box and is given a mission, isn't he? And, which essentially is a task. Uh, and then, you know, it will destruct in five seconds. Who knows what happens after that? Um, I find the word mission um, in Christian context quite confusing um, because people mean different things by it. If you look at the Church of England, so there's five marks of mission. Um, but I found this definition quite helpful, um, mainly because it's very simple. The mission of the church is the task given by God for the people of God to accomplish in the world. That's the mission of the church. Um, well, what's that task? Well, the task is a simple one that Jesus gave us. is to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Make disciples of all nations. Mission is about being sent. Christianity is a faith that at its heart is one that goes out to the world. Someone said it's the only organization that exists for the benefit of its non-members. And Paul was the greatest missionary in the history of the church. And so what can we learn from him in just four brief things? First of all, his passion. I wonder what your, what, what, sorry, I wonder what people would say your passions are. You can see a person's passion, can't you, when they get more animated um, about something. Uh, you know, those very best teachers that I bet you can remember from school are those who had a real passion for their subject. Well, Paul's passion was telling other people about Jesus. 
Verse 16, he says he was a minister of Christ to the Gentiles. In verse 17, he says, therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. Why does he glory? Why is he passionate about that? Well, verse 16, um, uh, he gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God. Um, I'm braving reading through the book of Leviticus at the moment, which is a book in the Old Testament, quite hard going um, to do that. It's full of all the Old Testament sacrificial system. Um, but in the Old Testament, worshippers would bring two types of sacrifices. One was a sin offering that would deal with their sin and, and uh, their chance to ask for forgiveness and deal with the guilt of how they'd messed up. But the second was a, a thanksgiving offering given in gratitude to God. And the priest would gather these in and would offer them on behalf of the people to God. We know, don't we, that Jesus has made the full and final sacrifice for us. And Romans 12, you now are to be living sacrifices in the way that we live our lives. And Paul sees these Gentile converts as kind of his offering to God. It's a way of giving praise and thanks to God. His evangelism is an offering to God. It's his passion. Witnessing to Jesus Christ of Paul is not some kind of add-on. It's a way that we make an offering to God and should increasingly become a passion of ours. The thing that excited Paul the very most was people becoming followers of Jesus Christ. I wonder, is that how we feel about telling other people about Jesus? Do we long for people to come to know him? Do we see that our friends and our family's greatest need is to know Jesus? Paul was passionate. But secondly, his goal. Paul's goal in his mission is not just conversions. His desire, have a look at verse 18. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. Paul's desire, what he wants is he wants people to experience completely transformed lives. That's what we call discipleship. The goal of mission is life change. Paul wants to have people filled, Paul's sorry, to have churches filled with people who, who do what chapter 15 say, like bear with one another, who serve one another. That is a life change to live that way. He wants people to live in such a way that they build each other up. I used to be a, a youth probation officer before I was a, a vicar. And um, I met some really broken uh, young people. And we do some really helpful things with them. Um, you know, help them deal with their anger through anger management and that kind of thing. But it felt very much for me like I was putting a plaster on this enormous wound that was just gushing. And, and a plaster in that case would not do anything. What these young people needed was they needed to meet Christ and they needed him to transform their lives. A church should be seeing lives turned around. Um, Paul Barnett in his um uh, speaking on this passage says this, preoccupation with a church's size may indicate an unawareness of the fundamental nature of true church, which is the upbuilding of Christ-centered faith and Christ-like behavior. There is no reason to believe that God is glorified by the size factor. 
though we know that he is honoured when people behave like Jesus. God would rather have three completely transformed lives than 303 people just coming into a church building. Change lives needs to be our goal. And that takes time, it takes energy, and it takes prayer. Third thing we see from Paul um, is that he's about word and deed. Um, I'm sure you've probably heard that phrase, haven't you? Preach the gospel and use words if necessary. Um, attributed apparently to a guy called St. Francis of Assisi, although I'm not quite sure whether he said it or not. But whoever said it, I'm not entirely sure they're right. Um, you know, me just doing something kind for somebody, you know, looking after the kids, doing their shopping, whatever it might be, that will not cause somebody to understand that Jesus came to earth to die in their place for their sin, rise to new life and bring them back to God. We used to do when I was at university, um, I used to give out toasted sandwiches outside the student union. I've seen some smiles. Other students probably did that. You know, to all the drunks coming out there, too many beers, here's a toasty. It's a good thing to do, don't get me wrong. But me giving a toasty to someone is not going to make them a Christian. They're not going to understand the gospel. So I get the sentiment of that quote, that words are um, of it. But words are always necessary. But (laughs) so are deeds. We must use words to share Jesus, but we must also live it out. And that's very much part of what's going to be going on at this cafe, isn't it? Cafe 55. It's a word and deed ministry. And it's what Paul did. Look at verse 18. It's by what he said and by what he did, or done, said and done. He got the message of the gospel across by speaking, but also by his life and his actions. And you see what he did, don't you? Verse 26. He's got this incredible heart for the poor. You know, organizing that collection for those Jewish Christians. I've been listening to this wonderful podcast. Um, it's actually a women's ministry um, called Revive Our Hearts. And um, it, it, they were talking about uh, loving people. Very much as, as, as Josh was talking about, kind of getting to know people and investing in lives. This is kind of what this is about. And they have this great phrase that in our relationships... We want to build up deposits of love by investing in people. So that at the right time, which we'll know when that is, we're able to make a withdrawal by which she means, this lady speaking, we share Christ. You almost like build the right to do that. It's word and it's deed. And last thing that Paul says, and we look at, is his strategy. Verse 20 and 21. His strategy was to preach the gospel in places where nobody had heard of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 22. He says, that's why I've often been hindered from coming to you because he's planting churches in places where there weren't Christians. Again, that's exactly what Josh and his family are doing in Ayers Monsel, isn't it? Going to a place where the gospel is not known. That's why he's, verse 22, he's saying he's off to Spain because the gospel is not known. And it's arguable that if Paul had not ventured into Macedonia, which is where he went kind of when he came into Europe, um, that actually Christianity may not have spread west. And many of us this morning may not have found faith in Jesus Christ had Paul not gone to places where the gospel hadn't been preached. That was um, Jim and uh, Elizabeth Elliot's story. I don't know if you're familiar with them. They're missionaries um, to Ecuador. 
and um, they were ministering to a, a tribe called the Quichuas, this remote tribe. And they arrived in the 50s. And very quickly, the, the tribe are very suspicious of them. And tragically, um, Jim and four others were speared to death by this tribe. Um, most people wouldn't go back. But Elizabeth, she left with her children. But then years later, she came back with her daughter Valerie to minister to these people. And there she is to the very people who killed her husband because she had a heart for the lost. I was reading that approximately 7,400 people groups are considered unreached with the good news of Jesus Christ. As I was standing, picking up my kids in the playground the other day and I was very much had this passage in my mind, I was challenged to think, you know, all these parents around me, they're lost, aren't they? They don't know Jesus. Now, it's important to say that we do not share the exact same mission as Paul. He was commissioned by Jesus Christ, appearing to him to go specifically to the Gentiles. And clearly he has a gifting as an evangelist, you know, a specific calling to be a church planter. We're not all in a position to do that. But I do want to say, there may be some of you here this morning thinking, I do feel a little nudge to go do that, to reach the lost somewhere. But even if you don't feel that, we all need to recognize the importance of mission and know that we are all called to make disciples of all nations of Jesus Christ in the settings that God has placed you in. Whether that is the office, whether that's the school, whether that's down the pub, wherever it may be. Do we, like Paul, have a heart for the lost? Well, two big Topics Paul is rounding off his letter with uh, unity and mission. And they have at their heart the roots, I have at their roots, sorry, the person of Jesus Christ. Because he's the one who can unite properly. And he's the one whom we've been commissioned to go and proclaim. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much that. When we meet Jesus Christ, our own divided hearts can be healed. We're sorry for when we sow division in our lives, in whatever sphere that might be. I pray you help us increasingly to be those people who use our positions, not to please ourselves, but to please others, to build up others. And may this body of Christ here in Thurnby be characterized by building one another up. Please help us as well, Father, as we think about mission, going out to tell people of Jesus Christ. We pray particularly for Josh and folk from Avenue Church as they head to Ayers Monsal, that you would equip them, give them boldness, and help to share Jesus. And we pray that many would come to faith. Pray the same for Cafe 55, that through that word and deed ministry, many would come to know Jesus and experience him for themselves. And please give us boldness in our own lives to proclaim Christ. Even if we're scared of doing that, afraid of doing that, worried, just fill us with such confidence and power by your spirit, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.